This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Weekends with Walshy starts now. Hello there, welcome to you. Thanks for joining us. This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. We also call it Weekends with Walshy. My name is Peter Gowers. I hope you've had a great week thus far. And I hope you're looking forward to another fun-filled episode of What's Happening in News in the Northern Territory. Let's get now to the heart of news in the NT and chat with Chris Walsh, the editor of the NT Independent. Walshy, how are you, mate? Hey, I'm good, Pete. Good to see you again. It's good to see you too. How's your week been? Yeah, it's been busy and we've been doing a whole bunch of other stuff that will hopefully get out here soon. Um, mm. Yeah, sometimes those, those kind of weeks happen and it just takes a little longer for some stories. But, geez, then, like, all this other stuff's happened, so we've had to stay on top <laughs> of all of that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's been a busy week again. Well, there was a couple of surprises there from my point of view, just like, oh, okay, that's happened. This will be interesting to talk about it. So yeah. it'll be uh, it'll be fun once we start wading through what's been happening this week. <laughs> yeah, more craziness, yep. Look, let's get into the first story because this is definitely one of those ones that I must admit I raised an eyebrow to when I read it, and that is that uh, Michael Gunner is officially out at Fortescue and says he has no new job planned. Chris, we've heard this before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, he, he made this announcement on social media this morning, Thursday morning. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, I don't know. A lot of people read it. But there's still interest here in what Connor's doing. That was going to be my question. Yeah. He made the announcement on social media this morning. Who's listening to these announcements? <laughs> I think he still has a lot of followers on like Facebook right. and stuff or whatever. Um, okay. For some reason. And like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't much get it, but um, that's where he makes his announcements. That's where he, he still posts that mm. anyway. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So he said he's had to get some uh, big personal news. He said, I have made the decision to leave for Tescue. And I think everyone's like, okay, well, something's gone on because <laughs> yeah. it's not just you making the decision to leave mm. and quitting. Now, this is, uh, you know, this this comes just five months after. So, in September, he said August in the thing, but according to his LinkedIn, it's September. And I think the story was in October. Um, well, it might have been in September when he was promoted. Now, this is when Fortescue Future Industries laid off all of its NT staff except for mm -hmm. Michael Gunner, and they promoted him. But re remember, he had a couple of a couple of mates follow him over from the government, yeah, yeah. Uh, from their high-paying jobs with government, including his best mate, Cam Angus, and uh, Chris Langworthy, a policy advisor for Gunner. And when he had quit politics, essentially, and left the NT parliament, these, these, these guys went with him. I think there was a, another person as well, and they all got sacked. And he led mm. them straight to the slaughter, and <laughs> they had no jobs. Less than a year yeah. in. And um, so, but that happened in September. And then he gets promoted to uh, Director of Business Development for Australia and New Zealand. Now, it didn't apparently dawn on Michael Gunner that a job with that title uh, yes. would include some travel. Uh, that you couldn't right. just do it all out of Darwin. 
and perhaps the requirement for some experience. <laughs> well, yeah, like that's, that's always been the question, right? Is like, why was he hired? I mean, what what did Twiggy yeah. here think that he was getting in Gunner? And 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 the questions that come naturally with the fact that he, you know, he's in government for that long. He's a minister. He's making decisions that directly relate to the company. And then yeah. all we have here is a six month cooling off period before a minister can then take a job with a directly with a company that they were involved with in their ministerial responsibilities. And, uh, and that's what he did. He waited the six months and he jumped on board. And uh, it appears right now as if he ran FFI into the ground, similar to the way he did the Northern Territory, and then just walked away from the wreckage. Uh, so, in, when he creates his resume for his next job, he can say, um, consistent leadership stuff, for example. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and so, I don't know how this is going to go down, but look, the questions that remain here are, uh, what exactly happened? So, you know, he said something, the, the company, we did go to Fortescue, uh, or Fortescue Future Industries. It's hard to determine. The their quote had more questions than answers <laughs> yeah, yeah. once you read it. Yeah, yeah. So, it was, um, yeah, and it was very quick. They got back to us, so they were prepared for this. And you just get the sense that it was, oh, okay, this is done to save face for Gunner. Um, they've let right. him say that he's chosen to walk away. Well, what, what he said was, uh, he said that I've made the decision to leave for Tescu after taking on the Australian director role in August. It was September. Uh, it meant more travel away from Darwin and the family, which I found too difficult. Uh, I'm taking right. a bit of time before deciding with the family what I do next and am now reporting for lunchbox duty. <laughs> uh, so yeah. the post included a picture of his wife and ABC journalist Christy O'Brien uh, with their two children, uh, who he has previously dubbed the quote Ludmilla lads. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what this is about. This is um, some marketing yeah. for the children, but I don't know if you saw this, but somebody sent me over the Christmas period, uh, one of his Facebook posts, and it's him wearing this hat that was made for him, and it says on it, like, Hudson and Huckleberry or whatever the hell the, the other kid's name is, <laughs> something like that. And it says, uh, the Ludmilla lads, like in big letters, the Ludmilla lads. And then on each side, it has mm. the kid's name. And it's like, oh man, I, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he thinks he's yeah. doing. I don't know why everything has to be, but like, I've never seen somebody exploit their children this much. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, everything is what the kids now. And I, I, let's just stick there with that for a second. Now back in, uh, when was it? November 22, what he said at the time that he took on this job, this was six months after he left Parliament, <laughs> he said at the time that he was taking the job with FFI to spend more time with his family, adding that the job was, quote, for the kids. Remember that? We weren't <laughs> sure whose kids he was even Doing it for the kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whose kids exactly? We think it was his. Anyway, and would allow him to, quote, make a meaningful contribution to the world, adding at the time that making the world a better place for his children with FFI was, quote, not wasting that time. I am away from them. He does know that FFI's um, sort of uh, parent company is one of the largest iron ore producers in the world, right? No, he, he probably honestly doesn't know that, Pete. I would not be surprised. <laughs> and so, but in this thing, like him saying, like, yeah, I know I'm going to be away from the kids, but it won't be wasted time because I'm making the world better for them. 
And now he says, it's, it's a waste of time. Uh, I've got to be back here with the kids. I didn't realize that I'd have to travel. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like, dude, like no one's stopping you from relocating. If you can't do the job in Darwin, hey, man, it's okay. You can leave. Yeah. We're, we're plenty yeah. fine on our own here. We're, we're good with you leaving, Michael. Get over to Brisbane or wherever you got to go. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, you just see how he, how he, you know, he's just full of shit and everything that he says and does. And um, he's spinning this one around now. Uh, yeah, we, we had to point out here early on, too, just remember he's still the subject. Because when we went to Fortescue, we said, oh, did Twiggy finally realize that he's under investigation by the ICAC? <laughs> uh, for, of course, you know, with his brother-in-law, Ryan Neve, and others for misusing taxpayer funds during the 2020 election to campaign in remote communities. Again, we don't know where that is right now, but we do know it's in front of the ICAC, and that hasn't been resolved. Uh, that was an issue that had come up. Um, it, yeah, like I said, back in September, they laid everybody off. Now, what happened when those layoffs happened? Well, they came just weeks after. Remember, Gunnar had cleared all the media out of the uh, NT Resources yeah, Week yeah. conference back in late August, early September. And um, it was really weird because, well, remember, I, I think I told you we had calls from people saying, um, well, journalists saying like, yeah, Chris, they kicked us out. And I was like, well, now you know how it feels. Like, <laughs> we, That's right. Yeah, but I, and I'm not even there. I remember I went on the country hour with Matt Brand to discuss that because he was pretty annoyed about all of that. And so what, you know, what the topic of the speech was, and we, we couldn't even understand why he had organizers come and just round up media and tell them to leave the room before he gave his speech. Now his speech was in, to FFI's proposed green hydrogen facility at the Middle Arm Precinct. Um, the questions were raised by industry sources over its viability after the layoffs that happened, whether or not FFI was serious about that. The company, of course, said at the time that the layoffs would not affect its plans at the at Middle Arm, uh, but it is unclear as of Thursday if the project's still going ahead now because now they have absolutely no presence here. And I think the, the Twiggy had said to back in back last year sometime about how great it was that Michael Gunner had to be here and how Northern Australia is so important to the country's, uh, you know, renewable energy future, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And so we need to have a presence there. Well, now they don't have a presence. Of course, the company didn't answer any of those questions that we sent about that and, and really what's going on with FFI now, if it's, if it's bust, if it's done. Well, that's a good point, yeah. Do they, do they even have an office in Darwin, or is it a WFH position? Yeah, I don't know, Pete. Yeah. Um, they, uh, what did they say here? They just came back with this very curt one-liner, <laughs> and it said, uh, we respect Michael's decision and his personal reasons for making it and wish him and his family well. Yeah, I think I, uh, think I saw a football club in the last week or two make a similar comment when a, a CEO, in quote marks, resigned from his position as well <laughs> yeah yeah look i yeah this is kind of the, the the kind of lines they use isn't it for this kind of situation but it yeah is, look yeah, i don't think anyone's buying the fact that that michael gunner just realized that he had to travel for the role it wasn't <laughs> for him um something's gone on there and we should see what happens soon i don't think that this is good for gunner i don't think he's leaving this post because he has something better <laughs> of course what he had said too was yeah taking that bit of time before deciding with the family what i do next 
So um, mm-hmm. he's got no plans either. His best mate, Nicole Madison, apparently she commented on the post saying, oh, it's great. We get to catch up for coffee or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they've got nothing but free time on their hands. and um, Maybe they're creating that uh, no. extra party that we thought no. needed to. <laughs> no. No, and it didn't even matter how you ended that sentence. I knew as you started that. If the two of those, if those two are putting the anything dream together. dream team gets back together. Yeah, yeah it's, it's going to fail. <laughs> it's going to fail bad. And, and worse the than, than the NT has, because it was just those two on their own. At least there was some sort of safety net here with public servants, even though we got to question their judgment sometimes. But no, you let those two fools run off on their own and set something up, it's doomed to fail. I, I, I'm certain of that. Well, Chris, I will bring up the fact that my initial reaction was to ask you, once we got to a certain break in this story, are there any other recently retired chief ministers who may be able to slot into the FFI role? But now I'm thinking... There's uh, Dream Team, three of them set up a new party and take on the big guns at the next election. Oh, God, no, 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 no. I don't want to see that ever. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think Territorians are more than happy to know that these three are gone and gone for good. Um, look, Files is still hanging out in the lobby. Um, so we don't know what she's doing exactly, but that'll get resolved soon enough. Yeah, look, I guess they could add Paul Kirby to their little team, Madison and Gunner and Kirby could go mm-hmm. do some amazing things for nobody in particular. Um, but yeah, look, I we know that it's good they're gone. We know they're big on forgiveness too. So you know, Mark Turner might be able to <laughs> join them in the in the crew there. I think Turner's smarter yeah. than to <laughs> jump into anything with these twits, but. Uh, yeah, look, anyway, I, I don't know, but if, if if something else is planned, I'm sure we'll hear about it before too long. But I, I, I get the sense that something's gone on with the company. This, of course, is private business. Michael Gunner has yeah. no frame of reference for how things function there. Um, so I think something's happened, and, and we'll see. I think, yeah, the next story we're probably going to hear about will be relating to Fortescue and whatever this FFI. And again, getting back to that middle arm, um, controversial yeah. middle arm precinct and this green hydrogen facility. Facility. Will it go ahead now? Uh, I, I think yeah. everyone would be doting that now. And what does that do to the future of the Middle Arm Precinct? I mean, everything was kind of put together there for a reason and done symbiotically so that everything goes together and makes it feasible. Yeah. And so the, what, what, what kind of effect does that have if it's not going ahead? We'll, yeah, we'll find all that out soon enough. All right. I look forward to hearing about it. Chris, uh, a secret review into how the government info is released to the public is underway. Yeah, and it is secret, Pete. They (laughs) don't want you to know about this. And even when you find out about it accidentally, Mm. uh, they won't tell you about it. They will answer no questions. They will provide little information, as little information as it possibly could. <laughs> now, where this came about, actually, you know, was I was reading a couple of weeks ago, ABC did a story about uh, FOI delays or delays into their FOI applications. And we need to be careful with the wording. And I always insist that people do this. It's not a request. It's not a freedom of information request. It's a freedom of information application pursuant to freedom of information laws. You know, the government's legally required to provide the information that they have to the public so that we can see what's going on. Now, there are some instances where, for whatever legal reasons or whatever loopholes they have, that perhaps it can't um, be released for whatever reason. This government, more than not, has a, 
uh, a track record of being the most secretive government that we've had in the history of the Northern Territory. And in fact, you know, f openly flout the, uh, the FOI laws that are in place and will block things for no good reason at all sometimes, except that they think it's going to hurt them. <laughs> so, um, Look, I've read, I read that story in ABC a couple of weeks ago and it about three quarters of the way down. I think they're, they're complaining about their FOIs not being responded to. And I think a lot of people were like, wow, ABC's filing FOIs. But I know they have some good journalists there who, who, who know how to do that. And so that's good to know. Um, but it was something like they had filed something into files when she became chief minister, which they didn't have when she left as chief minister. And, um, oh, really? Yeah. So it was that light. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. And we were talking about this. There was this study back in 2019 or a story about the study in 2019 that found that the NT government was rejecting one in four FOI applications. That's a rate seven times higher than Victoria and eight times higher than WA. So, um, yeah. And, and, you know, at the time for former labor MLA and CDU academic Ken Parrish, uh, used to speak with him all the time at the NT news and ABC when I was there and when he was here, uh, he said at the time that that was reflective of a quote culture of secrecy, uh, embedded mm -hmm. in the NT public service. The service had become top heavy over the years and quote, very much politicized because of the senior executive service and a large and still growing set of ministerial advisors. Of course, yeah, I was thinking we, we even talked to Ken uh, at the NT Independent when we did the story about, remember, the the executive contracts being like higher than yes. any other jurisdiction. Like we have yeah. actually more. You Three know, times the size yeah, of Tasmania. I think we didn't even have to say per capita. It's just that's how many we have. It's just like we're <laughs> up there with Victoria and then New South Wales with these. So, um yeah, so that gives you an idea of kind of what the background is on this. Now, what happened with this ABC story? They were complaining about that. And they got about three quarters of the way down and they said, oh, you know, Peter Scheuer, the information commissioner, says that there's a government review into this FOI stuff ongoing and he's going to say something about it. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. What the hell? That's a whole story right there. We we did not know. I read that and, I'm, and I know this stuff. I, I deal in this Information Act all the time. And I thought, well, no, I, I, I've never heard this. Called some people that I trust that I know also know about this. And they said, no, we, we hadn't heard anything either. So um, we sent some questions to the government saying, okay, now look, this is very simple. If you're doing a review into FOI, you know, legislation, into the Information Act, the, the, the bigger, broader Information Act, um, give us the terms of reference. You know, tell us who's, who's actually overseeing this review, um, how that person was appointed, why the review is being undertaken, when it started, when it'll end, the, the, why it wasn't publicly announced. Um, and, and, and I think very importantly, why no public consultation appears to have even taken place. Now, you're talking about the Information Act, and this is like information that gets given to the public that you would open this to the public. I mean, we have ideas, uh, and I'm sure ABC would probably even want to contribute if their FOIs are getting knocked back and not being dealt with in a, a proper time frame. Um, but instead, they're doing this internally. So what happens is they get, they get sent on to Attorney General Chancey Paik. Uh, he failed to respond to the questions. Instead, Peg's office sent a statement to confirm that, quote, the internal review, another one of those, so secret <laughs> review, was underway that would include, quote, technical analysis of freedom of information data from across government 
And that's fine. But then along with assessing the mechanisms for access under the act. Now, once they start talking about mechanisms mm-hmm. for access under the act, they're not going to make this easier for us to access information when they're changing the right. mechanisms for access. That tells me that that was, you know, the alarm bells were going off when I read that. Um, and we had, you know, no further clarification of what, what exactly that means. But I think, you know, given the track record of this government, and, and let's not forget the documents obtained under FOI laws have exposed many scandals for this current Labour government. And, you know, including the 2020 election campaign travel warts, which we just talked about with Gunner and his brother-in-law. And, and the head public servant Jody Ryan was mixed up in that. That's all under investigation by the ICAC. The uh, $12 million Darwin Turf Club grandstand scandal, FOIs were used in that. And uh, John O'Gibson at FO, at ABC, when he was still uh, at the Darwin office, he had exposed some stuff into that as it started to kick off that w- was done through FOI laws and was able to get these documents. And, of course, I used it, too, with the $10 million antique beverages scandal when I exposed all of that. So uh, and many other you know scandals for government. FOI is an essential tool for journalists to get information to the public that the government doesn't want released. And, you know, sometimes sometimes they do tricky things. So like uh, then I was thinking about the Sky News, you know, Matt Cunningham of Sky News a couple of years ago had asked, uh, well, not asked again, had filed an application under FOI laws for the government's uh, renewable energy target report. And this is something that just came up recently where the experts said they're not going to reach this target. It was a 118-page report in 2020 into how it planned to reach its renewable energy targets. But the government redacted 116 pages of the 118-page document. <laughs> so Cunningham got something that was the front page and the back page wasn't I was redacted. Say, so the front, the, the, the heading was there? Yeah. And the, the, foot, the footnotes. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah, every, the whole rest of it was just blacked out. So, um the government claimed at the time that the decision to redact that information was made, quote, according to the act. Um, right. So once they start monkeying with the act, what exactly yeah, are they yeah. looking at doing? This government shouldn't be anywhere near this, especially, you know, seven months out from the election going into six months out from the election. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, we don't know. So uh, Chancey Paik refused to explain why the government was currently reviewing the FOI laws and the Information Act. And what changes it was looking at specifically, he said only that Information Commissioner Peter Scheuer has been involved along with a number of government departments. Again, that that doesn't, yeah, yeah, thanks for no that. confidence there. Um, depending on the outcome of this initial work, he said, the anti-government may commission an independent third party to provide further options for reform. Again. Uh, I, not going to tender <laughs> yeah and i yeah that's it we just don't even know what he means by that um yeah we know about the secret reviews that they that they've been doing the icac it was a, a recent one where there was no i mean there was it was put up to public consultation at some point but this was like a year mm-hmm. and a half after looking into it we still don't even know the extent of the changes yet um yeah into that legislation but and look 
you know, at the time that leading uh, A.J. Brown, national anti-corruption expert, had labeled the proposed reforms, quote, inappropriate and counterproductive to having an independent investigative agency. So the government was trying to do sneaky stuff here mm. in the secret review. Um, the terms of reference for that view, again, were never released. And the names of those who recommended the reforms were also never publicly disclosed. So you could have a whole mm. bunch of senior public servants who've engaged in corruption saying here's what we want changed we don't want to you know yeah, he was yeah. getting too close <laughs> over there and that other one so shut that down like we yeah, just yeah. don't know like there's no it doesn't instill confidence in the public to to see government especially a government the scandal plague now be reviewing yeah. you know things that uh, mechanisms that expose that corruption um in the interests of of integrity and in government uh, which is why those laws exist in the first place and then they get in and start screwing around with them um, yeah. So, yeah, opposition CLP leader Leah Fanacchiaro said the latest secret review was consistent with, quote, this labor government that does everything behind closed doors. On their watch, she said they have had the secret ICAC review, the secret bail review and the secret youth bail review, which is still yet to be seen. Mm. It's widely known that labor has complete disregard for FOIs, dragging them out countless months to avoid the media cycle and criticism. Remember, this is all from the government who swore to Territorians they would be open and transparent. What a farce, she said. It is true, yeah. It is very true, Chris. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so, you know, we went to, uh, we did go to Shoyer, though, the information commissioner. We wanted to say, okay, look, the government isn't telling us what's going on here. Are you yep. going to, can you give us some information on this? Let me guess. He said, I have no information on this subject. <laughs> yeah, well... A little bit. He said uh, he confirmed that he is, in fact, working with different, quote, governmental working groups on the unannounced review to provide advice, he said, on three separate functions of the Information Act. So one, including FOI applications, which is, is big, uh, privacy protection, also very important, and uh, records and archive management, he said. So three different aspects that they're looking at, We, you know. Why, why, the, why the minister couldn't tell us that, I have no idea. But I guess, you know, you don't want to give up any information about a secret review. you got to keep it secret. Mm. Um, but Scheuer added he wanted to see improvements to the timeliness and handling of FOI applications, um, potentially streamlining FOI review processes, encouraging government to release more information publicly on their own. Um, while also suggesting strengthening privacy protections and establishing mandatory reporting for serious privacy and data breaches. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where this is at. No time frame provided for when this review mm. will be completed and no guarantee that he'll get his way. So it's providing advice. Um, but we don't know, like right now, we don't know what exactly he's really submitted, though, and we don't know what the government what they've said or what other parties are involved in this, what, what they're looking yeah. at specifically and what, why they, why they're doing this now. I find this all very unusual. And, um, it is. Yeah. I, I have them. a bit of a theory behind the secrecy though, Chris. Uh, when I lived in Dubai the first time I lived in Dubai and I worked in another emirate called Ajman. Go with me here. The emirates are like little states. And each state is probably the size of a suburb in, oh, actually, no, probably bigger than that. Probably the size of a municipality, right? So, a council sort of municipality size. Mm. Some, some of them, there's a lot of desert in there, but some of them 
are quite small. Some of them are, are quite large. Like Abu Dhabi is quite large. Dubai is quite large. But Ajman is quite small. Sharjah, which is a reasonable size, it sits between Ajman and Dubai. So there's your, there's your uh, geography studies for the city. Yeah, thanks for that, B. Now, before I got to Dubai and before I travelled every day through to Ajman, the Sharjah royal family approached the Saudis and they said, we want to build a new mosque. And the Saudis said, that's a great idea. And they said, can we borrow the money to do it? And the Saudis said, absolutely, we'd love you to borrow the money to build the mosque. We just want you to have your jurisdiction a bit more like where we are from. So a bit more conservative, no alcohol in the Emirate, yeah. uh, ladies to cover up more than they do, say, in, in Dubai, etc. If you're prepared to do that, then we're prepared to, to lend you the money. Mm. So my theory is, because we believe that all this money that's being borrowed by the antique government is coming from China, perhaps China said, <laughs> well, you can borrow the money from us, We'd like to see your government system a little more like ours. <laughs> more secrecies needed. Look, yeah, I, mean, I, I think they would do that for free. <laughs> I, I think Gunner's already taken some tips there, banning the free press and, uh, and files following that. And well, now Lawler's not, yeah, but um, yeah, oh, yeah, look, that's uh, pretty elaborate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, look, I wouldn't put anything. Past Maybe it's just my creative mind working in a down moment, but that, <laughs> that thought actually entered my head yeah. well, after last week's conversation on this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, the question is who benefits from it, right? And um, yeah. yeah, and that's it. Public servants here. Um, yeah, and the politicians would benefit from changes to what information and how that information is released to the public. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but we'll be watching this. Hopefully, we're, we'll get some more info. I hope uh, the CLP kind of pushes this a bit in Parliament and we get some more info on exactly what's going on. Uh, but we'll be watching it for sure. Sounds good. Chris, three quarters of police surveyed responded by saying that they had considered leaving the force. That's a really striking figure, isn't it? It is, yeah, and, and, and pretty consistent with, um, you know, yeah, the, the figures that we've seen for the past few years in anti-police. Um, since the uh, the morale went down, since everyone started leaving, um, yeah, so now the latest uh, union survey here has found that 98% of anti-police officers who responded said that there weren't enough police, 76% considered leaving the force in the last six months. Um, uh, but the morale on the other side of that has increased uh, by 18% in the past year. Of course, that's uh, directly attributed to uh, the former commissioner, Jamie Chalker, not being around anymore. And uh, I think you were pretty much uh, due for an upswing once he left the role. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of the, the bright spot. If there's any bright spot to this, that would be what it is. Um, but yeah, the, the NTPA president, Nathan Finn, saying that um, uh, the survey was undertaken here. We ran from December 9th to the 22nd. About 43% of eligible membership uh, took part in it. It was to guide the association's submission to the review into anti-police resources, which is still ongoing. We understand that's uh, Vince Kelly's former uh, uh, 
NTPA president, Vince Kelly's running that for the government. Um, and we spoke about that a, a few days ago. Um, anyway, Finn had said that, uh, yeah, 98%, so almost all of them believe there's not enough police right now uh, for them to cover what they're being asked to do. 90% said they've been required to work overtime in the previous six months, 61% said they performed duties outside of their work unit to address staffing issues in other units, sections, or locations, while another 91% did not feel supported by the government. That's pretty consistent with what um, they've been saying for years now. I mean, the the rank-and-file police here don't seem to... um, have a lot of respect for this labor government doesn't matter who the chief minister is who the police minister is um they're saying that they don't feel supported by by the government at all uh 63 rated morale is low or very low and that, that three quarters um, looking at the exit strategy so um yeah the, the the numbers aren't good here uh yeah our members don't feel supported by the anti-government they're required to undertake excessive levels of overtime, Finn said, and as a result of chronic understaff and critical under-resourcing and burnout, a significant number of surveyed officers are considering leaving the anti-police force altogether. Now, mixed with that, that we had record attrition under uh, Chalker. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we've never seen that many police leave. Um, you would think with Chalker gone, maybe they... They, still, they wouldn't, but um, it still seems to be an issue. And you've got three quarters of those surveys saying that they want to leave. Um, yeah, that, that's that's troubling. And, you know, what's the solution for keeping them here? I mean, you know, yeah, he's saying it, it goes to that under-resourcing and, and stuff and we need more cops. But, you know, it'll get to be a point where, you know, we, we already do have quite a large number of police uh, per capita um mm, so true. what what can they do that that's smarter and better and handle things differently um in management we haven't seen that yet and do you think chris that part of the the feeling unsupported comes from having such a uh, i guess a uh inexperienced politician as the newly crowned police minister yeah yeah that's got to be that was annoying. Be part of it, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, remember Finn. Finn came out. Nathan Finn, president of the NTPA, and 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 really blasted that decision to put Potter in there and said, you know, yeah. What did he call him? Like, you know, he still got his training wheels on or something. And uh, <laughs> he he's never been a minister before. He's never been anything before, and yeah. now he becomes police minister. Now, this is typically what um, the chief minister portfolio that the chief minister holds. And um, that was the case until Gunner kind of stepped in some stuff and, uh, yeah, didn't want to be involved anymore. Um, and then it was Madison, remember, and then and she goes down as the worst, I think, ever. And then it got moved over to Warden. And uh, and now here we are with this with Junior here who doesn't, you know, I don't think there's a lot of respect there for, for him and just how he carries himself. But um yeah look that uh, yeah and that this is no vote of confidence to him now he was in what in that um reshuffle back at the end of september i think maybe early october so there was time there's a couple of months for them to assess the new minister before the survey was done and you're still looking at uh 90 some percent um 91 percent saying they weren't they don't feel supported by the government that's directly on him as a minister yeah. that he's been in there a few months um so yeah, I don't know how they fix this, and I, you know, I guess this um, this review into the resourcing will be important. But like I said, like I said to you, you know, 
it could just come down to this case where we just make up an arbitrary number of, well, we need 120 more police. That was the number the CLP yeah, started yeah. throwing around and Labor did. And it really didn't mean anything. And it was hard to even ascertain yeah. if we obtained that because you had so many people leaving, especially yeah. under Chalk or when, when others were, were coming in. Um, and a lot of the ones that are coming in are new recruits, right? Like a lot of the experience had left when Chalker was there and um, that he kind of even pushed out at times. So how do you get that experience back and mix that? Like there's a lot of issues inside the anti-police force. And um, this survey uh, gives a, a kind of guideline of where some of the rank and file members are. But there, there are so many bigger issues to uh, look bigger, but, you know, kind of on bigger people to deal with in the executive that um, that uh, that haven't come out yet really publicly. And, but but this goes to clearly an, uh, organizational structural issues that haven't been addressed in some time. Like we do have a lot of police officers here uh, per capita, but why are we not using them smarter and better? And, you know, this this goes back to the executive and how they manage this um this agency and it, and it seems to me and i think a lot of police officers clearly that that, that management hasn't been there that the government i mean they, they don't know what they're doing they're reliant on the executive telling them really right like brent potter doesn't know anything about policing so he comes in and he's listening i mean he's got his own ideas that probably don't make sense you know practically with real police but um yeah, but this this is kind of the problem, and then it goes back to management, and then management's already been floundering here clearly for years, where morale is still low. It's gone up a little bit, but um, but these issues aren't being addressed. They keep coming back and coming back. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, we'll see what they do now. Yeah, your friends, the opposition, the CLP, have uh, commented on it, saying, what's it going to take for Labour to understand that our police force is in crisis, crime is destroying people's lives, and their policies are only making things worse? Leah Fanakar said, the overwhelming sentiment among officers is one of chronic understaffing, excessive overtime, and a profound lack of support from the Labour government. It's clear that despite a new chief minister and a smooth-talking police minister, nothing is changing for our hard-working police. Um, we don't really know what she's going to do either. I mean, I, I suppose she would probably say um, that she wants to see this. Well, she did, sorry, in the story that uh, she wants to see this Vince Kelly report into resourcing. And so she wrote to uh, Potter asking for him to commit to releasing the report at the same time for all members of parliament, but he was yet to respond. She said anything else will show a politicization of the review and undermine its independence. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. That's a very good and point. Because we, I guess we got to know what we're up against. But I just, I don't know. I don't have a good feeling about this review. And I don't think it's going to really address some of those real underlying issues that, that remain unresolved. The police, the police, the management always seems to duck and weave from. And I just I don't get it with the with the you know frame the terms of reference of this resource review. He's not looking at all the problems. That's good. This is like I said, this is going to be mm. some easy number that they're going to make up an arbitrary number, throw it out there. The government will commit to it ahead of an election. The opposition yep. will commit to it ahead of an election, and they'll try and take it a little further. Well, we'll even get twenty more officers, you know, and it'll we'll just see when rise you. Yeah, but that doesn't that's not going to address the real underlying issues affecting and afflicting yeah. the anti police force right now. And so until we have a real discussion about that, uh, it's not going to be fixed anytime soon.
Yeah, I think we need to use the uh, George W. Bush theory and root out evil. <laughs> That's what he seemed to like to do. Anyway, yeah, well, hopefully, um, look, it's not going to get sorted out before the election, but you're absolutely right in what you say that these are long-standing issues and you've got this uh, major difference between the executive and the rank and file, and then you've got the association that you know, tries to look after the rank and file, and the left hand's not too sure what the right hand's doing. That coupled with a junior, very junior politician who's now the police minister, mm. who's taken over uh, after uh, what could only be described as a crisis mm-hmm. within the force, in addition to the crime crisis. So, it's really difficult to manage even for someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely, Pete. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and so, yeah, I don't see this being fixed anytime soon, even with a new government or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah, still yeah. going to struggle. Yeah. Not even with the Gunner Madison Files new party? <laughs> I think they would <laughs> be laughed started? out. I don't think they would get any votes <laughs> the next election. <laughs> They'd be laughed out of the territory. But they should try. And how the new party go? No, not one vote. Not even one. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right, Chris, took, uh, looking at the next story now, and the antique government flags funding cuts to the EDO after the Barossa gas project court case fiasco. Yeah. Yeah, that's look. Yeah, Pete, this was bad. I think we we may have touched on it briefly here, and we've been um, I've been working on um, some other things related to this that 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 have been kind of delayed. But uh, yeah, uh, you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the uh, the, the Santos Barossa um, pipeline decision and the the uh, federal court um, ruling in their favor. Now. What had happened in this case was that the Tiwi Islanders had um, brought forward concerns about uh, indigenous heritage culture and the pipeline affecting that. They were represented by the Environmental Defender's Office. Uh, now, what the judge found in that determination, so it was we had the ruling and that was kind of the big news that day, but later people went through journalists and started reading what the, the judge's ruling was and what she found was was quite remarkable in that she found that the the edo and a lawyer with the edo quote distorted and misrepresented evidence during the the hearing uh the trial uh uh where you know the the information that that the lawyer with the edo was given by her clients the tiwi islanders was distorted and misrepresented to the court so what what they were told was not what the court heard and the court heard things being changed stories being changed by the lawyer and one academic expert who um who 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 altered essentially what the tiwi islanders were actually saying in an effort she found to um well to uh to uh maybe not tell the full story to the court here and to distort the story and misrepresent it um now this is pretty serious stuff when you get into this and so yeah. you know we had the uh the federal opposition leader peter dutton coming out nationally saying that he he was calling for funding to the environmental defender's office to be cut uh and saying that he would do so he would i think end all funding if if, if they were elected federally again um wow. so the chief minister uh, eva lawler was asked about it up here 
Now, what she did was she said that uh, the, the, this whole court case was an attempt by the EDO to derail the territory's economy. Um, so, I don't know what you call? call them, economic vandals, economic terrorists. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, like, you know, what the EDO did here and what this particular lawyer did and this academic, this expert witness is is reprehensible and can't. And something needs to be done. And she needs to be referred to the Law Society. They need to come in and take disciplinary action against this lawyer and the EDO mm. um, because they allowed this to happen. Um, but what this, you know, kind of gets to here with Lawler and the way she's handled this is you just get the feeling that, ooh, you know, this was against the government. And if you're not with us, you're against us. <laughs> you know, that mentality that labor has yeah. here. And so she said, her government would be reviewing its funding to the EDO in light of the court's findings and criticized the organization for attempting to prevent the pipeline from moving ahead, which she suggested was important to the territory's economy. So what she said was there needs to be some consequences for anybody who's lied. We, we totally agree with that. She said, oh, hello. particularly about something important to the territory economy. And then she meeting the Santos yeah. pipeline. TIO Canada. Yeah, exactly. There's, yeah, everything that's, uh, there's a, our entire democracy is pretty important to the territory. Are we going to hold anyone accountable for lying about that kind of stuff? Um, mm -hmm. She said, we need to have a look at that contract with the EDO. I've asked Environment Minister Kate Warden to have a look. She added her government uh, is intent on seeing the territory's economy boom while keeping environmental protection in mind. You, they're not very good at striking mm -hmm. a balance with that, Pete. Um uh, so she said that they fund the EDO uh, $100,000 a year. She said, I've asked Warden to have a look at the contract and the details around that because we need to work together in partnership with the Environmental Defender's Office. Yeah. Anyway, sounds like they're going to make some cuts because they didn't yeah. like how this went down. And I wonder, you know, it, it just kind of gives them an excuse to do this. And like I said, I mean, we're going to have more on this. Um, from that lawyer, uh, from that perspective, from what, what happened there in the EDO and how they've handled this because it's not good. And they've, look, I think personally, I think the EDO does some very important work in Australia representing, um, uh, you know, people who can't afford it here and who, who make, you know, very serious environmental claims here against the government. We need a body like that to do this, this is crucial work. They surely screwed up in how they handled this case, mm. and, and consequences need to happen for that. Now, you look at Western... Do they need to flow, do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I think it was in the story here that, that Western Australia, speaking of that, um, said, um, look, we're not going to... Yeah, the West Australian government uh, held that it would continue to support the EDO. In spite of all this, instead of unlike the the NT, uh, with eight hundred thousand dollars in funding up to twenty twenty five, but it advised the organization to reconsider its legal strategies. <laughs> like that's an understatement, but you know what I mean. Something does really direct though. Something does have to happen. There needs to be consequences for what the EDO and that mm. lawyer tried to do in this case. Um, because they've really given a black eye to the entire organization, and now they're they're at risk of losing critical funding. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of that money that they get is um, it is from Commonwealth and state and territory governments, also philanthropists as well. Though fund it because yeah. they know the value of this, and I think it is valuable. But um, when something like this happens, I mean, it it needs to be called out and it needs to be addressed. 
Um, and just to give you a little more context around all of that, oh, of course, uh, Leo Finocchiaro came out and pledged to cut the NT's funding to the uh, EDO entirely if her party's elected. So, yeah, she's not a big fan of that. Oh, that's swinging? Yeah. Now, in her judgment, uh, Justice Natalie Charlesworth criticized the EDO evidence of Indigenous cultural heritage, which they based this whole claim on, as, quote, so lacking in, in integrity that no weight can be placed on it. Right. <laughs> And said there was, quote, a significant degree of divergence between the evidence given by Tiwi Islanders and what was presented to the court. She said an EDO lawyer and an expert witness had engaged in, quote, a form of subtle coaching of some Tiwi people, getting them to, quote, tell their stories in a way that propelled their traditions into the sea and the vicinity of the pipeline. Now, these were stories that were made up of the equivalent of the rainbow serpent um, storyline that was in there, the yeah. crocodile man, this expert yeah. had this whole thing about, oh, I'm the crocodile man, and he was just over there off the edge there. The judge, when you read the ruling, she went back and looked, and she said, wait a second. Tiwi Islands weren't formed in the way that they're formed now back when this happened, so how can you say this? Now, in another case, an EDO lawyer had drawn a line herself. This, this lawyer who caused these issues drew a line on a map herself and said well this is where it is right and they're like well no we didn't really tell you that and she's like yeah sure here's where we'll draw a line this is where the cultural mm-hmm. significance is she was watching this to judge on videos and saying like i cannot believe this this is coaching this is uh misconstruing um yeah she said on that where the line had started was made despite the indigenous informant saying nothing to the lawyer about where that line should begin or where it should end but was then passed off to the court as well. This is what they're saying, and the, the cultural leaders are saying this. This is what I interpreted. <laughs> um, so the uh, Justice Charlesworth said the actions amounted to distorting and misrepresenting what the Indigenous informant had said. The material supports an inference that Indigenous instructions have been distorted and manipulated before being presented to this court via an expert report, she wrote. Later, adding communication, she saw videos of court preparations reduce the integrity of the evidence and the reliability of a cultural mapping exercise. Um, we know that Santos uh, is moving on. They've uh, resumed works on that pipeline um, and uh, trying to get gas up. Now, they were saying today, I think we heard on ABC that, you know, well, we had it in the story here that they, they're saying, you know, the court battle delayed the project. There was a figure being thrown around incurred an extra 300 to 450 million in capital expenditure. Uh, the company had not said when we ran this story if it will be seeking that from the Tiwi Islanders, but there was uh, costs awarded to Santos. Now they have said that they're uh-huh. not going to um, to be seeking that from the Tiwi Islanders. Their costs for this thing that, that ran into the millions of dollars. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. That's a good PR exercise then. Yeah, well, yeah, for them. And um, and the EDO is the one who lost big in all of this, where their credibility is yeah. in tatters now and, and their funding might be cut. So, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because something does have to happen there over this. Yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it? Mm. All right, Chris, let's, let's have a look at the next story now. And uh, this is one that's been talked about a fair bit in recent times with the massive allocation of water being handed out to Singleton Station. Well, a judge has dismissed the Singleton Station water license legal challenge. 
Yeah, Pete, yeah, this is um, yeah, very controversial all around. I mean, this is the largest uh, water uh, application and, and license given in the history of the NT, 40,000 megaliters to Fortune Agribusiness, of course, for the remote Singleton Station, which they had um, built as a, kind of a food bowl area. I mean, there it's quite an extensive agricultural uh, area that they'll be growing yeah. everything. And the original idea was to send most of it to Asia. And I still think that is on the cards. Um, but they will be, we will have some produce here, I guess, from that. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, look, it had been taken to court and uh, an Aboriginal corporation had commenced proceedings against the Territory Families and Urban Housing Minister, Kate Warden. Um, who was the delegate of the then environment environment minister Eva Lawler? Um, and when that decision was made, uh, Kate Warden signed off on that as the minister to grant that license. Now the judge has come back and uh, found, uh, in part, that the uh, territory families minister, so Kate Warden, who made that decision in place, and the environment minister. Um, was able to give reasonable and rational consideration to the matter in the four days she took to make the decision. Now, you know, there's a lot of detail that it gets into here, but she, and it was over the weekend. I think she was given a report on Friday. Now, what had happened was something like Eva Lawler was supposed to do this as the environment minister sign off on this if it all stacked up and was good. But she had to recuse herself for a conflict of interest. And then the question was, well, what was going on there? And it turns out that it was something about how she said um, she was just going around spruiking it, saying what a great thing it was publicly. And then, you know, okay. you've got to, you can't do that. You know, you've got to, you're the minister signing off on these things. We want you to be, you know, non-biased, just focus on the facts here before making a decision. Yeah. Don't be going around spruiking the thing, as we recall. Mm. The last chief minister did out of middle arm as well. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. So then, look, this report was done. It was given to, and then it was given to Kate Warden. She got it on the Friday afternoon and made the decision on Monday. Um, now, hey, cool. yeah. Well, the judge said, "Well, we don't really expect the minister to read everything, do we?" I mean, she has people who can do this. So, like, I think this case, like, really is like. Uh, basically some precedent setting thing where a minister doesn't have to do their job anymore the, the court has found the minister should not yeah. be expected to read crucial don't, documents don't job. come on yeah it's crazy like it, it's actually crazy when you think about it um and, yeah. and woody's done a, a quite detailed story here about this where you, once you're done reading it you get the sense of everything that's kind of gone on in the past in this i mean they were changing rules they were changing figures. They were changing everything to get this across the line here. And now the judges backed this up and said, well, basically, they don't have to read everything. I mean, they got to take advice from someone. So, uh, you know, <laughs> they basically do what they want. It, it, it's really crazy. Anyway, um, yeah, Fortune Agribusiness, as we know, owns Singleton Station. Now, that was a 294,000 or is proposed to develop the 294,000 hectare pastoral property in the Western Davenport Water Allocation Plan region was one of Australia's largest fruit and vegetable farms. Um, and they're saying they'll spend $150 million to establish a 3,500-hectare irrigation project at the station, about 150 kilometers south of Tennant Creek. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, it was, it was awarded. The, 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 a 30-year license was announced on April 8, 2021 making it the NT's single largest private water allocation. 
And as we know, the NT doesn't charge anyone for water for these licenses. Mm. So we got nothing out of that. But what is on us? Yeah. So in in May of 2021, so the next month, the Aboriginal Corporation and the uh, Arid Lands Environment Center had commenced separate proceedings against this. Uh, uh, sought a review of Lawler's decision uh, to grant that. So then the minister referred the matter in July of that year to the resources review panel. They, they provided a report to Lawler. In November 22, Lawler delegated her powers to Warden to reapprove the license. So they went through some reapproval thing. So she said, well, I might have a conflict because I've been spruiking this. Here you go. Yeah, Warden only has a few days. Uh, she approves the license. The court was told she was given 1,600 pages of technical advice and correspondence from Fortune to consider and made the decision in less than one business day. So, yeah. Well, that's all you need, mate. One day yeah. is enough. Yeah, look, I, I encourage people to go and read this, uh, this story on our site because... Um, yeah, the, this is um, this is something, and uh, we may have to have more stories coming out on this too, because uh, some of this stuff. Justice Barr uh, said in his conclusion that the minister had wide discretionary power under Section 90 of the Act. He accepted the submission uh, of counsel for the minister that the language employed in the Act is very different to a requirement that the decision maker is bound by, by must follow, or must adopt the provisions of an Act applicable water allocation plan. <laughs> he said, I would add that there is no requirement that a water extraction license decision must accord with or not be inconsistent with a water allocation plan applying to the area in question. Now, of course, the, the, there had been that, that argument made that the decision failed to accord with the drawdown limits identified in the water allocation plan um for that region um which were intended to protect groundwater of course but instead the minister chose to apply a departmental policy document instead of you know relying on the science here and, and the figures of what had actually happened um which was and then that was the thing this departmental policy document that she relied on was developed in consultation with fortune agribusiness right. the proponent which had no statutory significance under the NT's Water Act and was said to be fundamentally inconsistent with the water allocation plan. But like I said, Parr says, well, there's nothing in there that says they're bound by, must follow or must adopt the provisions of a water allocation plan. They can just, do, again, do what they want. I would add there's no requirement that a water extraction license decision must accord with or not be inconsistent with a water allocation plan. Yeah, so there's going to be, <laughs> there are some issues here with this um, anyway. So another uh, situation where it didn't say something that maybe it should have or could have, so let's throw it out the door. They didn't give them some government fuel cards with that water allocation. <laughs> <laughs> they might as well. Look, I, I think in the long run, this is going to be way more valuable than a fuel card. I mean, this much yeah, water is crazy and uh, at no cost and you know but i i think when when you look back into all of this and how the government and, and the department really kind of manipulated everything and just threw the data out the window i think we were talking about that west mm -hmm. Davenport thing before um back in december and uh, just how they went about that they, and they didn't look at everything right they were given the signs for them and they cut out the part that they didn't like and focused on that yeah. like there is a lot of really shady stuff going on there and uh, the mm. 
that should um something needs to be done this this really does need to be investigated all of it and uh i don't know the fact that the justice bar here seems to be going along with it i think is an issue but uh, i guess he's he's mm. retired this week he's done so he doesn't care <laughs> he's done his job here he said decision uh, nah. done throw the gavel over his over his shoulder and left yeah yeah uh, and uh, i was just surprised at the reason for recusing herself uh the now chief minister, was like a full legitimate reason. I was thinking that you were going to say the reason that she decided that she had a conflict of interest was because she'd been dealing with water allocations at TIO Stadium, so she couldn't deal with another one. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, and they didn't get that right either. Not a yeah, getting water. all the fireys in with their trucks. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, um, yeah, have a, have a read of all this, Pete. Like, it's, um, yeah, we're going to have to do more on this. Uh, this smells really bad how they got this through. Yeah. And, and look, look, I don't think anyone's, uh, well, at least we're not being anti-development on this. I think, like, this thing should be done probably. It's probably, it could be beneficial to the area and jobs and all of that. Yeah. But you got to follow the science on this stuff. We have to be able to... Uh, to protect the environment like like lawler says but like when she says this like you just get the feeling she doesn't mean it that it's more about chasing down the 40 billion dollar economy by 2030 but at what cost and that is something yeah. that we're going to talk about a lot more because this 40 billion dollar economy stuff just it it, it just kind of gives them carte blanche to do whatever they want and that they will erode yeah. rules they will break rules they will break you know they, they'll, they'll bring in new legislation if they need to 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 reach that goal at the expense of everything else and we just and, and ministers i'm sorry ministers have to read all of the documents that they're of course given. yeah and this whole 20 what is it 40 billion by 2030 or uh it, it, you know we've we've talked about this in so many spheres over the years chris but it's also got to be as you say at what cost or not at what cost really but at mm. the same time it's got to be done based on common business sense so it's all well and good to say oh this is going to create 10 billion dollars so that that goes into the pool for our forty billion. Yeah, but it cost you five billion to do it. Yeah, so, well, that's what I was going to say. Hundred no. million, they'll give this company to do that, and yeah, 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 it's, it's crazy. Money, it, business is pretty simple. It's, it's money in, money out, right? If there's if there's as much going out or more than what's coming in, mm-hmm. it's it's all just numbers. It's not actual reality. And it's and it's the focus on that. It's the sole, you know, obsession. blinders on the obsession. Yeah, with that, Pete, that that's not letting them see the problems inherent in what yeah, they're doing yeah. and not covering all of their bases. And this is a, a perfect example of that and how they've gone about this with this water license. But it's going to keep going. The same. It's the same age-old argument that we're constantly making. You've got people sitting in these positions who have no experience or no place being there. So they could miss something genuinely, not trying to cut corners or not trying to do their job. They could just genuinely miss something because they don't have a background in that. Yeah. You know, And that, that to me is the most troubling thing. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah, there's going to there's gonna be a lot more like this going on mm. here in the next little bit. So we'll keep watching. We'll keep reporting it. All right, sounds good. Chris, the government hands public housing to not-for-profits. Should we be concerned by this? Um, well, 
I don't know. I think uh, the government's looking to cover themselves anyway they can. Right. And this looks like the easy way out. Now, um, what this actually means, we're not sure. I mean, overall. But uh, we do know that Mission Australia Housing and Team Venture Housing uh, taken over management of 500 public housing properties in Darwin and Palmerston. Um, so this is part of the government's plan to move up to 40% of urban public housing to community housing providers. Now, if this is being done to save money on the government's part, um, perhaps this is good. But there's so much to weigh and balance in that, isn't there? Because you, you have these people who they need you need to have public housing here somewhere and how is this going to affect it urban house urban housing minister nari uh, kit said in a statement there the other day that it was the government's first large-scale transfer of public housing management to community housing providers in the greater darwin region with mission australia housing taking over the management of 251 homes in darwin's northern suburbs while venture housing has taken on the management of 250 homes in palmerston she said uh, part of its community housing growth strategy for the next 10 years, or 2022 to 32, aims to transfer management of up to 40% of that uh, urban public housing to community housing providers. She said it's being done uh, transforming the delivery of social and affordable housing in the NT by creating a contemporary and sophisticated housing system that will deliver benefits to our public housing tenants. Yeah, that doesn't really answer anything. Now, the minister said public housing tenants would not would have, quote, no out of pocket rent increases under the new management arrangements. OK, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that means. Yeah, No out of pocket rent increase. Someone's paying for it, but not the housing <laughs> people they, in the housing. They won't go and specifically take it out of your pocket. They'll just take it out of something no, else, like out of their right. that, their money. No. What they're going to do is they're not going to send it to you in the first place. So it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's because you'll yeah, never receive it. That's exactly what we were thinking on that. Um, so yeah, look, uh, I guess we'll see how this goes. But uh, these are charities, I guess. Both venture housing, it's a not-for-profit community housing provider, and of course, Mission Australia is the uh, is a Christian charity that is entering into social and affordable rental housing. So. He, uh, we were kind of surprised that they didn't just privatize it. I'll give it to some private company. I mean, I think that this is positive yeah. that they've got these groups in who don't seem that, you know, that, that they would understand the importance of providing this housing to people who can't afford it. Um, so they we would, hope that this is positive. Would. Yeah. Not for profit is not for profit. That doesn't mean it's not that they can't run a business and it isn't a business. It just means that at the end of the, you know, each each trading year, they they're not going to have any extras sitting in the bank account that they should. But <laughs> you know yeah. they still need staff and they still need management and they still need to carry this out. But of all the groups you could give it to, who aren't the government, this is probably the best option. Let's let's see how it how it's run and carried <laughs> out. That's the, that's the key to it. Yeah, and I think like look if if we had been there at the presser when she did this, although I don't I don't I didn't really see anybody say anything. Anyone else report really on it? But um, yeah, the security stuff. I mean, that's going to be an issue. Your security and is this now? Anti-government's just washing its hands of that. So well, it's on your get you guys now. You pay for the security. Yeah. Whatever needs to be done in there. But, um, yeah, we'll see. Chris, uh, a new management team is set to oversee Sun Cable's domestic Darwin Link project. 
Yeah, and it's and and that's the interesting kind of part on this, Pete, isn't it? The Darwin <laughs> link, the domestic side of this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So of course we know Sun Cable went into voluntary administration last year when the the two billionaires there got in a fight over whether or not it was viable yeah. to um, to move this to uh, yeah to uh, to Singapore through that subsea cable, which still seems ludicrous. I think to everybody, yeah, um, it's the cable that Singapore doesn't want, right? Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, they have other ways of getting energy, and they <laughs> they don't need it. Yeah, and um, yeah. So now they've appointed Sun Cable, though has appointed a new leadership team to oversee the domestic side of the resuscitated. Australia Asia PowerLink project that ultimately aims to transmit solar energy from the NT to Singapore, but will now focus on providing power to Darwin first. And this is important, Pete. Okay. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, don't you think they should have started there? Anyway, they've got a new managing okay. director, Cameron Garnsworthy, and a new chief development officer, Martin Hay. Now, they'll be overseeing the deployment of the Darwin Link as it's called, which, of course, is the onshore component of the AA Power Link project. Uh, the Darwin Link includes the establishment of a 20 gigawatt of uh, solar and 42 gigawatt of energy storage facility located in the Barclay region, which the company hopes will one day be used to export renewable electricity to Singapore using that sub um, subsea cable crossing Indonesian waters. The Darwin Link is projected to deliver a maximum of six gigawatts of electricity to Darwin through an 800 kilometer overhead transmission infrastructure line. Well, the project overhead, Singapore, yeah, that's it said overhead in the thing. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like I, okay, I, I don't understand this. <laughs> yeah, overhead transmission. Nobody does. Well, the project Singapore Link component aims to export that minimum of 1.75 gigawatts of clean energy to Singapore through a 4,300 kilometer subsea cable. So, um, why not keep it overhead? <laughs> Garnsworthy. <laughs> Put in some badges, a couple of poles. <laughs> yeah. So these new guys have come in, Garnsworthy, and hey, they've replaced, replaced Sun Cable's three founders, David Griffin, Mac Thompson, and Fraser Thompson. Uh, they will be reporting to solar farm developer Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners, who is handling the project's strategic developments. Their appointments came five months after Sun Cable changed its strategic focus, initially entering into voluntary administration last year after billionaire investors Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks disagreed about the project's viability. So, uh, Grok Ventures and Quinbrook, uh, which has acquired Sun Cable, is looking to focus first on supplying Darwin by 2030 and then move ahead with its plan to supply electricity to Singapore and other countries in Southeast Asia. So there was uh, the Quimbrook co-founder and managing partner, David Skaysbrook, had told an industry magazine this week that uh, this underscores our goal of delivering on the huge potential of Darwin Link, which underpins our primary focus on this genuine superpower opportunity for the Territory in Australia, delivering groundbreaking infrastructure projects like Darwin Link Needs a team with experience, vision, and real horsepower, and we certainly have that with this team. Um, yeah, so they've got some new people, and, and that's what they're focused on. That's cool. I like the fact that Darwin's getting it first rather than sending it all overseas. I think which, this is uh, good, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I know the, the reliability of the grid has improved somewhat in recent years. I mean, when I first moved to Darwin, it was 
chaos. Even in the dry season, you could expect blackouts on a regular basis, not necessarily for days and weeks on end, but just, you know, you'd be sitting there having dinner watching TV and the power would go off for 10, 15 minutes and then just flick back on seemingly for no reason. So if, if that can, you know, create consistency in the grid, um, you know, I know with Cyclone Marcus we had five days of no power in lots lots of parts of Darwin. So these sorts of things, if they can provide consistency in, in times like that, well, that's fantastic. And given that we're producing the, the energy here in the Territory, then mm-hmm. um, it, it should be staying in the Territory. Why are we giving it to offshore places? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree totally, Pete. That is good that they're going to focus on this because we do need it here and um our renewable energy look the government's not not capable of doing this themselves clearly so uh, (laughs) we need all the help we can get and if they're going to do this i I think this is going to be good absolutely chris uh lastly on the stories for this episode a bit of a strange one a passenger in a ute was hit with a bullet from the side of the road in palmerston what actually happened uh, this is a, a regular Tuesday night in Gray. Um, you're driving down the street. Oh, it was and in you Gray. Get shot. Say no more. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it was in Gray, yeah. Um, yeah, and you're driving down the street and you hear some weird sound and then your leg's bleeding and you realize you've been struck by a bullet. An errant bullet that was apparently shot from somebody's residence outside of the residence in the front right. yard. Anyway, yeah, look, this was a bit of a weird one the police put out this week. The passenger of a white Hilux was shot in the leg while driving down a Palmerston Street more than a week ago. Took that long before this game. Um, As investigations continue into who fired the gun from outside the home, uh, police said the incident occurred on Dillon Circuit in Gray around 11 p.m. on Sunday, January 21st, when a firearm was discharged from outside a home into the side of the passing vehicle. The passenger was reportedly struck by the bullet in the lower leg, taken to Palmerston Regional Hospital for treatment. However, the incident was not reported to police until recently. We were reading that and I was saying to Woody, like, what, how, like, what is going on here? Is Palmerston this crazy that when someone presents to emergency with, with gunshot wounds? Yeah, wouldn't the hospital have to... Yeah, report this? But I guess yeah. it's Palmerston, man, and anything goes. But. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought that the criminals had to go to, to like veterinarians and get them to stitch up their bullet wounds and stuff, <laughs> right? So that the, that's the hospital doesn't report them. But yeah, I, you know, yeah. I've been watching too much Trailer Park Boys when I was younger from <laughs> uh, from Canada, where I'm from, yeah, Nova yeah. Scotia, and that's what they used to do when they'd get shot, and that was smart. And then you're sitting there thinking, "Hey, that's smart," because you go to the that's hospital, true. and those those nurses are going to report you to the police that you're engaged in something. But in Palmerston, and I think this is a great marketing ploy for them, too. I think that they should be promoting Palmerston Regional Hospital. We know that it's not being used as much, but say, hey, you get shot, we won't tell. You, no you questions asked. No things, yeah. We ain't telling the cops nothing. You come on in. I think this is, this is great for them. I love um, it. That should be in their slogan, I reckon. We won't tell. It's a great marketing, great marketing <laughs> slogan. We ain't seen nothing. <laughs> I, I really, I think that the police should have explained that or, or should be asking questions of the staff of Palmerston Regional Hospital. So you treated somebody with a bullet. It was 
like that's a crime you know that a crime's happened um but no okay you didn't th- think to call us but maybe it was like one of those mafia movies where the yeah. the uh the sh- the shoot the person who got shot their friend they've got some sort of firearm and they say to the nurse right you you remove the bullet and you don't tell no one nothing or come back <laughs> yeah. and get you <laughs> yeah well that that is a possibility but then at that point, you let that person go, and then you wait a little bit, and you call police anyway, because really, what the <laughs> hell are they going to do? They're low lives. They're not coming back. Yeah, the trailer park boys, like I said. So, um, yeah, look, so back to this just bizarre story, but the victim's vehicle was later identified as police said this as a Trayback sing- single cab white Toyota Hilux. So, uh, police said in a statement, Serious Crime Squad is actively investigating the matter to ascertain the circumstances surrounding the incident. No further information was provided as per usual with police, including what type of firearm was used, any descriptions of the alleged offender or offenders. No, mm. and they're just urging anyone who may have witnessed the incident has information regarding the whereabouts of the, the offenders or observed any suspicious activity within the vicinity of Dillon Circuit and Gray. <laughs> On the 21st to come forward and assist um, with the ongoing investigation. That's a fairly broad question. You might get inundated with information, none of which will be related to the shooting. <laughs> yeah. I guess wow. they're counting yeah. on people on the street to tell them more than the health professionals did that night. Yeah, they, they ain't telling nothing either. <laughs> Not a bomber's then. We don't tell. <laughs> they're, they're tight-lipped about the whole issue. I think it's um, interesting that... The one piece of information that they release is a description of the ute, not the person yeah. shot or not a likely shooter, <laughs> but the car that got shot. <laughs> they said that too. The victim's vehicle was later identified as a Trayback single cab white Toyota. Mm. <laughs> and he was not happy about being shot in the door. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> the driver also didn't report it at any time until, yeah. 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 They found out that they uh, that they just found out this week about it or something. They said police only found about it right now, and we're like reading <laughs> the release and we're thinking, what, wait, what does this mean? You found out about it right now, like as you're issuing the statement. Anyway, so the dude that got shot, did they they removed the bullet from the person who got shot. They were they, treated in a hospital. It, they said, yeah. Isn't there that scene where the the doctor or the nurse has the kidney dish? And they pull yeah. the thing out, they drop it into <laughs> the trash. Right. So, it should be fairly easy to identify because they just get the bullet. I think, I mean, again, Simple this Wits is- would have had that wrapped up in 10 minutes. Yeah, but again, you're not you're not factoring in Palmerston Regional Hospital's new policy of not telling nothing and just putting it in the bin <laughs> and forgetting about <laughs> it. Then you guys go about your business. Don't tell. Yeah, you go about your business, we'll take care of the bullet. <laughs> you go home and rest. <laughs> like I don't know what they're doing out there, but it sounds good. It sounds <laughs> wow. Anyway, it sounds crazy. Yeah, that yeah. is crazy. Well, I hope they get that case wrapped up because we don't <laughs> want people randomly shooting guns. Uh, probably cars, someone yeah. who. Well, it probably wasn't. It was probably someone who was watching TV outside, and there was a wicket in the cricket or something, and they were pissed off, so they let off a, let off a firearm, either on purpose or by mistake. Shot the TV and it ricocheted, maybe. <laughs> but then it's one of those issues, though, that you're hitting a guilty person, like yeah, you know, because <laughs> the, clearly the the person who was shot and the driver 
the normal thing was to report that to police, but they didn't report it. They went to the hospital though with it. Like you know what I mean? This, 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 it's yeah, yeah. It's a messed up scene. Whatever happened out there? It's a it's a crazy scene. In was it Dwyer's? Uh, Dylan Circuit Gray. Yep. Yep. It's probably just been listed on the FBI's don't go zone now as well. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Chris, yep. I will get you to hold there for a second for me, please. And now. It's time for the job files, thanks to no one in particular. Now it's time, as he just said, for the job files job of the week. Recently changed its spelling due to changes in the seats in the government. Chris, uh, this week, the Department of Industry, Science and Resources, which is a federal department, are looking for digital managers. This got my attention for a couple of reasons. One, because I felt it was the most generic job description I may have ever seen. (laughs) But then I read the actual ad and I was like, clearly the federal government's not using the same rule book as the territory government in terms of uh, how they write their ads because this thing is literally a war and peace novel (laughs) and I'm not going to read it all to you. But I saw a couple of really, really interesting parts in there. Um, In this role, you're going to provide strategic advice on the corporate digital channels and platforms, including websites, social media and newsletters, deliver strategic projects to ensure content, websites, platforms and tools deliver on the department's vision and remain fit for purpose. This includes advice on digital communication, strategy and user experience. Uh, manage and administer one or more of the department's platforms, industry.gov.au, consult.industry.gov.au, social media, Swift digital newsletter platform, and the internal readability engine platform. There's a whole lot of other things in there. But one of the things I thought was really interesting in these things uh, in in the job because there's multiple jobs all being looked for under this digital platform, okay. and there's a yeah. there's a lot there's a line in there that basically says, look, you don't really have to have experience in this area. <laughs> Just basically apply for the job, and we'd be happy to hear from you. <laughs> Which I don't know if that means that. Uh, and we'll train you. Looking for numbers. Yeah, we'll yeah. do something because ICT is this area where there's a lot yeah. of staff needed nationally and they can't find people um, um look, and sooner or later it'll be ai right it'll be done by ai and- yeah but they don't say that in the job chris because they don't want to scare you off yeah. you will lose your job in 12 months once the computers <laughs> take over but yeah. for now we need a desktop ict operations we need someone person. with a pencil and a piece of paper and, uh, that is exactly the- right yeah. Now, positions do require a baseline security clearance and successful candidates will be required to obtain and maintain a clearance at this level. So, if you've been in the vicinity of Dillon Circuit recently, you need not apply. Okay? <laughs> That's just how it is. Uh, the fair. number to apply for this role is 02-627-61235. You can always email if you're a bit shy. Recruitment at industry. See, but I like the names. I like at least the NT has the names attached, right? I know. I know. And also, they but, do, but 
Well, so what are they paying for this, Pete? Nah. It's just a scale. Federal government crews, yeah, they don't, they don't advertise that sort of stuff. I think maybe because it's multiple roles, but, yeah. you know, if, you, if you're going home with less than 100K a year, you wouldn't get out of bed for that anyway, so you wouldn't accept it. So, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. It it doesn't mention it, but give um give that number a call and just ask them. Just say, look, I'm not, you know, I'm sweet with the – the position description just tell me how much the cash is and if it's acceptable i'll apply for it yeah and then the thing is you could conceivably if you don't have a criminal record and you live on dylan circuit that you could conceivably do this job from there right like you could do this job from the antiso that's true and you could really promote your high security factors in there too because if you are in that vicinity then clearly you know how to secure and defend yourself <laughs> that's right that's right, Pete. Yeah. But Possibility mate, uh, When can we expect Parliament to go back to provide some entertainment? Uh, well, we're into February now, so it will be later this month. Uh, I can't remember the exact time uh, or the exact days. I, I want to say it's mid-month, um, mid but it may be later than that. Um, there's going I to be... I thought it was about then. Yeah. Um, and then, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess there's a lot of stuff that they have to get done first. It looks, yeah, 13th, 14th mm. and 15th here, pull it up. So, um, so a couple of with, weeks. Yeah. And with the change of government or, <laughs> well, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> uh -huh. right, I'll calm down. Touché. Change, change of administration, um, mm. with Lawler coming in. Yeah. I, I think that this is going to get interesting and, uh, we'll see, you know, Lawler, I think has shown herself uh, in the, in the first few weeks here now of uh, when she does these interviews that she's a little more off the cuff than Gunner and Files were, um, you know, yeah. whether for good or for ill, <laughs> I haven't determined yeah, yeah, yet, yeah. but, um, yeah. you know, we'll see. She kind of says more than, than they do and isn't quite as guarded and uh, tries to be as perfect as they always did without saying anything. Um, Eva, yeah. I think we'll, we'll give her that, that she's a little more frank and upfront. Um, and we'll, we'll see well, how that goes good. for her. I mean, it could be good, it could be bad, like I said. But um, I yeah, think it's right. refreshing for, for a lot of people not to – I mean, like, we, we, you know, we, Files was always criticized as being far too robotic in all of her answers. So, it's yeah. a complete departure from that, which is good to see. But uh, uh, whether or not what's coming out of Eva's mouth, I guess, sometimes is, um, you know, is reliable or uh, to the point of mm. what the answers that we need. Anyway, we'll, we'll see. But uh, – Mm, yeah, that, that first sittings will be very interesting indeed. It will. And both parties will, both the major parties will be very much on display and will be getting looked at because if there are undecided voters out there, then uh, they're going to want to pick one side or the other. So my unasked for advice is you've both got six months. It's time to shine. So yeah. we need policies from the CLP beyond three green ticks and dot points. And we need to see tangible improvement from the government. It's not just same old, same old. Yeah, I know. And I, and I just get the sense that they should have been working on this stuff before now, before <laughs> six months. Out, <laughs> they because absolutely it, should it's, Like I said last week, that is going to roll by quick. And like I said, yeah, when, like you said, we're into the six months range now. Just last week, we're in seven months. So it's already getting closer and closer. 
And um, I just got to get the sense now that this is just going to happen. But how is it going to happen? I mean, there's, are we just going to the polls without understanding where parties sit on policies here and exactly what needs to be done to address the issues now? I think no, at no time has it been more important than now. Um, and heading into this election where we have such fundamental problems that we face as the territory um, to determine what the best policies are going forward. Um, yeah, it's going to be really important. And uh, I don't think, honestly, Pete, that, that either party has those kind of answers right now. Um, and, I, and and they probably won't. Um, no, so, yeah, we'll see. But, um, yeah, we're in a bad place right now. We know that. Like I said, I'd love to see the politics taken out of the crime stuff and just say, okay, both parties are committing to this regardless of who wins. We need to yep. do it like this. But yep. there's yep. been no right. appetite for that from them. I think the public want long-term solutions. Yeah. And, look, that was the other thing that was going on this week was um, – that we didn't get into, but I, I think you had Leah come out and talk about a policy thing with the NT News about, uh, you know, well, we're, you know, we, we just got to bring back, you know, essentially saying they're going to arrest more people for crime. <laughs> but the question that never yeah, got asked yeah. was, what the hell are you going to do with them? Because where are you going to put them? Yeah. Are you put, are you building a new mm-hmm. jail? And then Eva Lawler mm-hmm. came on the chief minister today in some weird story, which I still don't have my head around, but, uh, of why that was even a story, but, uh, to respond to Leah in just some exclusive story, which was kept in the top position, main story for most of the day, which I found very weird when bigger stories were breaking. Right. But anyway, and she said, yeah. um, um, I got, geez, I can't remember what she said now, but it was something about, uh, uh, well, she hadn't committed to, well, I guess they're, they're, they're expanding the prisons. And so she's trying uh, to do the tough on crime approach too. But like uh-huh. I said, we're getting in this issue where, where we're getting into these discussions of how we have bigger prisons instead of we've all just given up on how we actually address crime <laughs> and just trying yeah. to rest our way out of it. And that's not going to work because it ha- that's all we've been doing and it hasn't worked. Correct. And I'll tell you what's also not going to work. People are not going to be swayed by if one leader says, I'll do this. And then the other leader says, yeah, I'll do the same plus 10%. Or, <laughs> yeah. We'll yeah, do it better. Or, yeah. That's not going to work either. <laughs> no, but expect anyway. a lot of that here in the next six months, Pete. I have no doubt. All right, Chris, I look forward to catching you again next week. Great. We'll see you next week, Pete. That was Chris Walsh from the NT Independent online newspaper, Weekends with Walshy. Back again next week on the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. You have a great week and we'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. For more episodes, go to all your favourite podcasting platforms or head to territorystory.com.